Well, we are in this series that we're calling, I Believe in God, But. And it's a series exploring the gaps between what we publicly profess and our actions. There's often a gap between what we say we believe and actually how we live our lives in different ways. And today, we're considering the gap of, I believe in God, but pursue happiness elsewhere. Now, let's get an elephant out of the room right away. Because Christians, when I mention the word happiness, Christians tend to do all kinds of weird things with this. And it's funny, some, I've literally heard people say, you can't really talk about happiness in church. Joy, yes, but not happiness. And so Christians do a lot of silly things when it comes to talking about happiness. And so two things, I'll just say, let's deal with them, get past them, and then move on. So the first is this. The first silly thing Christians often do is try to separate happiness and joy as different concepts. You may have heard that joy is what you're after, and happiness is somehow lesser. It's unspiritual, or maybe it's even bad compared to joy. You know, joy is steady and constant, and happiness is up and down, up and down. And so, joy is good, happiness is bad. Here's the problem. The Bible doesn't do that at all. The Bible makes no differentiation whatsoever between happiness and joy. There is no scale of relativity that joy is up here and happiness is somehow lesser. It does that in no, nowhere in the Bible does it do that. As John Piper summarizes it, he says, if you have nice little categories, joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction, and you could go on, and blessedness and all kinds of other things. So let's not fall into the trap that so many Christians do of talking, trying to make this differentiation between happiness and joy. It's unbiblical to begin with. Here's the second silly thing we do. We tend to do things and say things meaning well, but we make very imprecise statements that hurt way more than they help. There's tons of these. Let me just give you three. How many of you have heard or even said this one? God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. You heard that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You said that? I'm not going to ask you to say if you said it. Now, Christians say, this is dumb, okay? It, it's, it's actually stupid, and here's why. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you say, God doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be holy, well, sign me up. You know, I've been, I, what I've been missing in life is something that will make me a more sour person. All right, that's great. Or maybe you've heard this variant of it. God doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be strong, it's the marine Christians. <laughs> or you get this sweet, sappy, sentimental statement. God wants you blessed, not happy. Oh, gag. <laughs> All right. Sure. God doesn't want you seeking your happiness at the expense of holiness. 
but Scripture nowhere makes happiness and holiness mutually exclusive. That you can have one without having the other. And, and, and Christians, we just we get into bizarro land talking about happiness, and we say these things, and I know what people are trying to say, but these things actually, they're imprecise statements with a little bit of truth, but they actually harm more than they help, and here's what's at stake. The message that God doesn't want you to be happy is not biblical and does harm to the gospel itself. Uh, Doug mentioned there's a book that uh, was written called Christian Atheist that some of these concepts came from. Well, the author in that book, I completely disagree with him because one of the things he says, God doesn't want you happy. Oh my. So if you're reading that book, just ditch that whole chapter. The guy is wrong because nowhere does the Bible teach that. God does want you happy. We're going to look at that in a, in a way in a moment. Everybody seeks to be happy. And when you say God doesn't want it, you do damage to the gospel. Because what is the gospel? Think, think gospel of Luke. The angels come to the shepherds and say, I bring you good news of great joy. The good news is great happiness. The good news produces that within us. Happiness is a good thing. Everyone seeks happiness. It's as natural as breathing. You know, it, it, a man or a woman seeking happiness is just like a fire burning. It's what it does. Men and women throughout the centuries, every single person seeks happiness and is after it. Theologians know this and they acknowledge it and they say that's absolutely fine because that's exactly how God has made us. It's written into our DNA by the Lord to pursue happiness because that's how we were originally made, to be supremely blessed. Here's just a few examples of theologians who say this. Augustine, every man, whatever his condition, desires to be happy. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, philosopher, and great theologian, said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. And even Jonathan Edwards, there is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness. They will twist and turn every way, ply all instruments to make them happy men. Everyone seeks it. It's as natural as breathing. You can read the Puritans on this. Thomas Manton, Thomas Boston. They talk about this is just the way it is, and it's a good thing. And God wants your happiness. Now, everybody seeks it. Everyone has a formula for it. Whether you acknowledge this or not, or whether you've actually thought about this, you have a formula for happiness in your life. Generally, it goes something along these lines. Peaceful circumstances plus better possessions, you know, because your current possessions aren't good enough, so you need better possessions, good opportunities, the right relationships, and extra money at the end of the day. You add all that up, that equals happiness. You can, you can come up with many different formulas, and here's a little video to just explore that a little further. What's something everyone wants every day that can't be bought but can be found? And when you find it, you can lose it. But if you share it, you get more of it. The answer? Happiness. And everyone has a formula for finding it. 
A lot of people say, me plus job plus a house plus a family equals happy. It's the classic American dream. But for a teenager, the formula's more simple. Me plus a car equals happy. Then there's the nature lover formula. Me plus a backpack minus civilization equals happy. The sports fan says, me plus my team plus the number one draft pick equals happy. And for the millionaire, it's me plus money plus even more money equals happy. The problem with these formulas is that other stuff messes with the equation. The millionaire meets a billionaire. Oh, yeah. The sports fan starts losing. The nature lover runs into a mother bear and her cubs. The teenager's formula gets way more complicated. And lately, the American dream hasn't been so dreamy. People have lost jobs and lost homes. Families are crumbling under the strain, and more people than ever are wondering, is there some other formula out there that can make me happy again? There is, but you won't find it out there. You'll find it in here, and it looks like this. And there's going to be some people listening to the sermon online. They're going to be like, it looks like what? I can't see it. And as I said, first hour, too bad for you. There's only two people, my mom and one other guy out there somewhere listening. But for those two people, what was shown on the screen at the end of the video was a painting of a thriving tree. It's on the cover of your bulletin. The artwork's called Rooted. It's this beautiful tree with roots going down deep. And you may be saying, why is that a picture of happiness? Well, to answer that, let's look at Psalm 1 together. Just the first three verses. Why is a rooted, thriving tree an image for what happiness looks like? Hear God's word. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Now, Psalm 1 is so rich, and and we could probably take seven sermons exploring Psalm 1, so just know this is just a small portion of the jewel that is Psalm 1. But what it does is introduces us to the way in which we may find happiness and fulfillment in life. And you may not realize this, why there's so many passages we could have looked at to talk about happiness this morning. Here's why I chose Psalm 1, because the very first psalm in the entire Psalter begins with the word blessed, and you know what that word means? Supremely happy. Supremely happy and fulfilled, literally. So the whole Psalter begins this way, supremely happy and fulfilled is the one who does not walk in step. They are the one like a tree planted by streams of water. They are the one who thrives. And you may be saying, okay, I'm reading this, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. I don't get that. You you, you may be thinking, okay, I can get how you delight in God's mercy, how you get delight from thinking about God's grace, or even just taking one of God's attributes, minus wrath, and meditating on that, and you say, I get how you can find delight in that. God's law? We scratch our head and think, okay, law, 
Well, isn't that just something that we respect and hopefully obey? Yes, but it's more than that. As commentators agree, the psalmist using the word law of the Lord here is using it in a technical term way to mean all of Scripture. You see, the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one whose delight is in this, the totality of Scripture. And why is this their delight? Because the totality of Scripture reveals the person, the character of our God, the one that we're in relationship with. If you want to know God, go here. This is the best way to know and experience God himself. And it's kind of like if you say, I love nature, or I love football, or as I said first hour, I love physics. Now, you say you love something, I love history. The psalmist is saying, I love God's word because God's word lets me experience him. What the psalmist is literally saying is the one who delights in this and meditates and chews on this is the one who thrives. This person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Who doesn't want to thrive in life? Everyone does because we all seek it. We all seek happiness. And no, this is not Christian reductionism saying that if you do this, then you're not going to have any problems in life, okay? Psalm 1 doesn't say this, nor does any of the rest of Scripture. You realize this, right? That a Christian's circumstances are no better than any non-Christian circumstances, okay? We are never promised better circumstances if we love God than for the person who doesn't love God. Christians get cancer, just like non-Christians get cancer. Christians die and have horrible things happen to them in life, just like non-Christians do. This is not saying, love God, and He'll just give you everything you want, and He'll make you have a really good, easy life. Terrible things happen to the people who love God as much as they happen to people who don't love God. But what Psalm 1 is telling us is that happiness and thriving is not contingent on our circumstances or surroundings. Think about the tree. We just assume that all of the land surrounding the tree is beautiful and lush. Not necessarily. The land may literally be barren. It may be a desert. And yet the tree thrives in a wasteland because of the stream. It's not contingent on its circumstances. Your personal circumstances this morning may be bleak, and I know some of yours are, but here's the good news. You can thrive. As the psalm states, you can even experience supreme happiness and fulfillment despite your circumstances. Last week I was in Texas for a pastoral conference with a bunch of guys from different denominations, and the singer there was a young man named Ben Kyle, and part, just an amazingly gifted musician. And part of Ben's story is that 
he's had Lyme disease for about four years. And he said the first two and a half years or so were some of the worst years of his life. He was so debilitated by the Lyme disease, he couldn't pick up his guitar and play it at all. He has young kids. He can't do normal activities that a father wants to do with his children. He said, some days it was so bad, I literally couldn't leave the house. I would just curl up in a little ball. It's horrible. Christians, just like non-Christians, get Lyme disease and suffer terribly. And yet part of what Ben Kyle discovered was this. He continued to seek God even when everything was dark for him. And it didn't work this way. And here's the good news. I sought God and then everything was better. No. He still suffered. He still had days he couldn't do anything. I sought God and I found that in him I could thrive despite my circumstances. You see, the Lord was teaching him that despite terrible circumstances, there's a pathway to happiness. And it was really painful for him to learn this. I just mentioned a moment ago in our prayer before the sermon, we have brothers and sisters around the world suffering just for being a Christian, being tortured, being killed. And yet, you know the amazing thing about so many of them? They have more joy and happiness than most American Christians. And it's not because of their circumstances. So why don't we, if, if it's available for us to thrive and look like this tree, why don't we experience this more often? I think the root of it is this. We look for our happiness and fulfillment in life everywhere else because we don't believe God will give us everything we need. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe in God, but I don't believe He is the source of all happiness and that in Him alone I have everything I need for joy and abundance in life. So we think we have to supplement it. We think, okay, yeah, yeah God, I, I believe in you, but I need this too. And this, and this, and then I'll be happy. Because God, you're not enough. Now, we never say that, but that's how we live. Okay, I know, I know. Uh, it, it's kind of heavy. We all do it, okay? So everyone's a sinner, everyone does this. It's, it's all right, okay? It's a, it's a sermon on happiness. So I know. Uh, we, sometimes we just have to deal with how we're so messed up. And because we don't believe this, and we seek it in so many other ways, here's the kinds of things we do. One, we pursue happiness in sinful ways. You know, anytime we choose sin, and you can, the sin of your choice, whatever it is, gossip, selfishness, pornography, anger, whatever, whatever is your go-to sin, you know why you go there? Because you think that thing is going to make you happy. And sometimes it does, just very briefly. And what you're saying in that moment is, God, I believe this thing I'm choosing actually is going to make me more happy than you will. So I choose this, and I run from you. There are times that Christians will actually, and we, we get so weird on this, will actually try to pseudo-spiritualize our sin. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, 
there's a, there's a family I was working with for a period of time, and it was a situation where marriage was rough, and the wife left the home, moved out, and, and, and you, know, you know when people always think they are fooling everybody else, but she left her husband, left the home, saying it was, well, we just need a separation, and separations aren't always bad, but you know when that separation is just a first step towards a divorce. It was, I mean, it was so obvious. And here's what she said in the midst of it. I was counseling her. She had already moved away from Charlotte, so I was talking to her on the phone, and she was saying, but Rick, what you don't understand is I have so many wonderful godly friends, and they are, they are just such a blessing. They provide strength, and they're helping me find myself, and they're helping me realize that my happiness is actually this pathway. And what I told her was this. I said, you know what, I'm so glad you have friends that you're finding enjoyment in. But here's what I want to challenge you with. What you really need is friends around you. Surround yourself with friends who love Jesus more than they love you. Because what you're telling me is you've got a lot of friends who love you first and Jesus second, and they're telling you what you want to hear. Find some friends who love Jesus more than anything in life and let them speak into your life about your present circumstances. We, we, Jeremiah says the heart is deceptive above all else, and the Christian heart can rationalize sin so easily. So first thing we do, we run to sinful things seeking our happiness. Here's the second thing. You, know, you could say it this way before I get to the second one. If you want to put it in the terms of the psalm, is that it isn't that God didn't want this woman to be happy, The problem was she was walking in the way of sinners trying to find it. So sometimes we run to sin. Here's the second thing we do. We actually place happiness and we seek it above God himself. Now this is a tricky one. And and you need to follow carefully with this one because I believe this takes real heart examination on all of our parts, self-included. Sometimes the way we live our lives as Christians is our ultimate desire and chief end is personal happiness above everything else. God is just a means to that. And so what we do is we'll seek God as long as God does what we want. Give me the things I want in life. Bless me the ways I say, Lord. And here's the way it goes. Now we start making demands and manipulating God. And it doesn't work that way. That is a type of Christianity where self is on the throne and personal happiness is above all things. God is just a means to that happiness. I hope that makes sense to you. And the problem with that is I know too many Christians who this is what I'm after and God, because you didn't heal my child, now I'm angry at you for the rest of my life and I walk away from you. Forget it. I gave you a chance, God. You blew it. I'm out of here. That's where that goes. Because you were never seeking God first and foremost. You were seeking happiness first and foremost. Even the philosopher Aristotle knew this never works. He had, he had what's called the paradox of hedonism. Hedonism is just another word for pleasure, happiness, joy. And, and what he said was, if you make pleasure your ultimate goal, and you seek that above all other things, you'll always be disappointed because you'll never get what you're after. 
You'll only find pleasure by losing yourself in other things. Yeah. Anybody remember Calvin and Hobbes, the old cartoon strip? I love that. Here's two week-after-week episodes of it. Calvin's the little boy. Everybody seeks happiness. Not me, though. That's the difference between me and the rest of the world. Happiness isn't good enough for me. I demand euphoria. And Hobbes, if you don't know the strip, is his little stuffed tiger who sits there. (laughs) The problem with you, Hobbes, is you're always at a loss for words. And Hobbes says, I found that saves many a friendship. (laughs) And what I loved about what Bill Watterson did, here's how he followed up that strip the next week. Here's Calvin. Here I am, happy and content, but not euphoric. So now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day's ruined. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. You see, if you're after something first and foremost and you don't find it, you're always going to be doomed to disappointment. Put happiness as your chief end above God, you'll always be unhappy. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with what's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They knew. Everybody wants happiness, but don't seek it first. Here's the last thing. Well, let me say this, because I think this is an important thing to remember, particularly if you're having hard circumstances. Jesus did not suffer so that we would not suffer. He didn't suffer so that we would never experience suffering. He suffered so that when we suffer, we can become more like Him. See, God never promises us better life circumstances if we love Him. What you're promised is a better life. If you don't remember anything else, hang on to that. God never promises you better life circumstances. He promises you literally a better life. A life where you can experience supreme happiness despite circumstances. Here's the third thing we do. We look for ultimate happiness in things that can't provide it. You know, there's a lot of good things that are forms of happiness. Nature. This weekend, come on. Incredibly beautiful. That's a source of happiness. Friendships. Marriages. Children. Donuts on Sunday morning. There's a lot of things. I had that for breakfast this morning, and it made me so happy. (laughs) There are many sources of happiness in life. There's only one ultimate one. And when we try and put something else in an ultimate seat, it warps us. I don't remember where he talked about this, but I remember reading years ago, C.S. Lewis talked about this, how joy will come and hit you in flashes, and, and the thing is you'll try and hold on to it. And he, he, like, he gave an illustration of a relationship. You find a, a person, and it's like, I get so much joy being with this person, and here's what we do. We now seek to dominate their time, and we become tyrannical. Well, let's get together tomorrow night, and the next night, and the night after, and if they say no, we get really upset. You see, we're seeking to find something in them that they can't deliver. They can be a source and a form of happiness, but not the longing of our heart, ultimately. 
enjoy your friendship, but don't put it in an ultimate spot. And he said, what's going to happen is, and if you keep going that way, here's what you're going to find. And you know this is true of marriage. Make your spouse your ultimate source of happiness. You're going to find your marriage just getting harder and harder and harder as you go. Because your spouse can never provide you what your heart's truly after. Now, See, here's the irony in this. My wife said this after first service. She said, okay, you gave us those three things, and then I felt very unhappy because I do all those things. It's like, yeah, okay, we all do. We all do these three things, okay? We don't have to stay there. Sometimes we need to deal with what we do to get to where we need to be. And here's why none of these three things work. I'm giving you two images I want you to remember this morning. The first one, is the tree. Here's the second image I want you to remember. Candy. All right, now, let me explain this. Why, why is a candy as opposed to tree? Psalm 1 calls us to find supreme happiness in the Lord. Do you remember, and some of you who are mothers, you know, you tell your kid before dinner, before lunch, don't eat too much of this. Why? Because it will ruin your appetite. Right. You see, the problem with candy, and I love candy, it gives you a sugar buzz, and the sugar buzz makes you feel full so that you don't eat the things that you need to eat. You fill up, and your body and your mind and your heart's racing with sugar, and you feel really content. But it keeps you from imbibing the things that will provide real nourishment for your body. And the problem is this, when Christians run to these other three things, seeking our ultimate form of nourishment for happiness, what we're doing is we're substituting spiritually a sugar buzz for what our souls really need. This can be the sinful things. It can be good things that we make into ultimate things. It can simply be wanting favorable circumstances. All of those can act like spiritual sugar and give you a high. And here's what happens sometimes. I think it's what happened with Ben Kyle and his story. God takes away the favorable circumstances and we go into depression and we're in the depths of woe because we're little sugar addicts And we're not getting what we're used to, but what it does in the midst of the pain, it drives us to where we need to feed. You see, we'll hunger for the spiritual nutrients we really need. And when you feed there, like the tree, that's when you'll thrive. You see, the good news of Psalm 1 is this. God is not opposed to you being supremely happy and fulfilled. He wants that for you. But we need to know where the ultimate nourishment comes from. The one who's like the tree delights and meditates, chews on, feeds on this, because then you'll be a person so in love with God you'll realize that's what I've always been looking for. 
If you don't know how to meditate on Scripture, a simple thing you can do, take a passage you love and just memorize it. That's meditating. You work it over and over and over again. Just, just memorize it. So beneficial. If you want a mentor for how you can better do this, talk to someone in real life leadership, the men's ministry or vine life leadership, the women's ministry, or Doug, who can set you up with a mentor to help you in this way. There's, there's no quick fix because you know what? A tree's roots, they grow slowly. And it says we slowly feed where we need to that we'll start thriving the way we're intended. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to say, you know, every day that I don't penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word is a lost day for me. He realized how important this was. If that doesn't make sense, uh, there's, I read a story a few weeks back about a grandfather who gave his grandson a wedding gift. And when the wedding gift, the grandson was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer of a wedding gift, granddad, because it was a, one of those big fancy Bibles with your name embossed across the front, has his name, his wife's name. So the couple wrote a nice thank you to grandpa, put the Bible in its box up on the shelf. And his grandpa kept, every time he'd call, like every two weeks, so you like the Bible? Yeah, yeah, grandpa, I love the Bible. Every call, you like the Bible? Yeah, grandpa, I love the Bible. A couple years later, he finally said, you know, I ought to read that thing. So he pulled it down, and he went to the beginning and said, I guess I'll go to the beginning. He went to Genesis 1, and there was a $20 bill. He's like, huh. And he went to the index, like, hey, where? He went to the beginning of every book and found a $20 bill in there, roughly 1300 bucks. And his grandpa told him, I want you to remember, God's word has great riches in it. And you will be fulfilled as you seek him. He's like, why didn't I look at this sooner? <laughs> now I know why grandpa was always asking me about the Bible. Let me give us two quotes and a summary statement as we think about this. Augustine said this. This is the beginning of confessions. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and of your wisdom there is no end. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts will always be restless, striving after real nourishment until they find their rest in him. Kitty Muggeridge, wife of the famous Malcolm Muggeridge, wrote this, yep. happiness is friendship and laughter. It is a loving companion. It's loving our neighbor. It's a lovely day. It's the beauty of the earth. It's the sweet content and peace which occasionally overwhelms us and which we can not account for. But far surpassing all these and many more is the sublime happiness of finding God and loving him. What Psalm 1 is trying to get into us with the image of the tree is you can thrive as you chew on and meditate God's word. And here's what you'll find happens as you do that, as you thrive. It's only when God becomes our greatest joy that all the other joys in life take their proper place. And when that's true, here's what you're going to find. All of the other joys in life become even more enjoyable. You see, seeking God as the source of ultimate happiness doesn't diminish your joys. It explodes them.
May we seek Him. Lord Jesus, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Forgive us, Lord. You know, I seek my joy in so many places other than You. Forgive my lack of faith. Forgive our lack of faith, Lord, and help us to be what the psalmist calls us to be, to chew on Your Word and to seek You with all of our hearts. Lord, we thank You that You are not a God who is opposed to joy and happiness and gladness, but instead you want that and more for us. May we find it, Lord, in you. Help us, Lord. We need your help. May we experience your joy today and more and more every day. And we pray in your holy name. Amen.